Julia Adolph, and welcome to Loose Leaf Notebook, where we will explore the connection between creativity and mental health, nurturing artistry, emotional intelligence, and self-care. I'm a composer, and I will be sharing my own personal creative process and journey towards mental health, as well as inviting other artists and creative individuals to share their own inspiring stories with you. Today, I am joined by my best friend, Xander Snyder, who is a geopolitical analyst and co-founder of Reconsider Media. We talk about how at Reconsider, Xander and Eric Fogg employ Stoic and Buddhist philosophies, as well as certain practices from cognitive behavioral therapy to help them foster healthier political conversations. Um, it's a really incredible news source that is quite different from the very divisive uh, media that we are used to consuming. Um, so Xander and I talk about just kind of how to think and prepare about the upcoming election and also how Xander has explored many diverse careers um, in his life so far and how he stays connected to his creativity. Hi, Xander. Hey, Jules. How's it going? We've been best friends for 14 years, if you could believe that. Long time. Yeah, so we met in college, and I've seen you actually explore a wide variety of career paths. We all grow up with an idea that we have to pick what we want to do, and then we have to pursue that one thing, and that's kind of it. Um, and I would just, you've done so many fascinating things already, and you've had a lot of like unexpected turns, I think, from, from where I'm sitting. I have gone from kind of career to career telling me or with people telling me that the transitions I was going to make are just like not possible. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had an economics degree too. So I had that going for me and I was a double major and all that, but I really wanted to be a composer at one point. I loved contemporary music and I, I loved writing it. I enjoyed conducting it and I loved listening to it. Um, I still do. I got to a point where uh, I, I had a guitar teacher when I was young who I, I asked him at one point, I told you the story, what made him decide to be a musician. And he said at one point, well, I realized that I couldn't actually do anything else. And I don't mean that in a romantic way. I mean, I actually wasn't capable of doing anything else. Um, and I'm like, I, it just got to a point where I knew that like, if I were to go down the path of like graduate school in music and, you know, so on and so forth, it could potentially be an extremely difficult path. And I had other interests and I had always had other interests. So I thought, well, maybe I should try something out else out first before I, you know, commit to an artistic lifestyle, which as you know, is not necessarily easy, even though you and some of our friends have done phenomenally. Um, it doesn't always pan out that well. Um, and you were very, like, I just want to say, you were very serious about it. Like, you, you got, I mean, we were very much, we were doing it together for a long time. And you, and yeah. you went to Eastman for graduate school. and I just, I, I thought I should try something else out. And, uh, and ret, you know, retrospectively, yeah. I'm sure I'm glad I did. Yes. Because I found out that I'm, I'm not really a musician at heart per se. I just really enjoy going deep about certain subjects and music was one of them. And when I, I figured out that there was another subject that I wanted to go just as deep about, I realized that that was kind of, that was the trend and not necessarily um, that I needed to do, to do music. And I, I, I learned yeah. that I didn't need to, so I didn't. Um, but yeah, I worked in finance. I did a tech startup and now I'm basically in political analysis. I, I worked at a, a think tank for several years. Certainly in, in the years to come, 
as automation becomes more prevalent and as change accelerates, having the ability to quickly pick up a new skill set is going to become increasingly important. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm, I'm clearly a little biased because I have lots of interests and I've had an untraditional career path, but I think this 20th century idea of specialization being the only way to go and being the most effective way to go for a long time because of how corporate structures are set up and so on and so forth. I think that's gradually going to change because I think a lot of the innovation is going to come from people with deep experience in multiple fields. And um, it's going to be easier to stay afloat um, if your skill set becomes quickly obsolete, if you can quickly learn a new one. Um, and there's no better way to learn than just by sitting down and doing it. Um, I'm, I'm taking calculus right now, which I haven't done since college from my graduate program, and I'm finding I really like math now, and I never liked it as a kid. If you, in your head, develop this idea that I'm not an X person, I'm not a math person, then you're never going to do it. But anytime you start learning something new, you're going to be bad at it. That's part of the process. Right. Um, especially if it's something uh, you know, difficult to learn, struggling is, is a feature. You're supposed yeah. to struggle and, and take breaks and step away from the problem and think through things and... Um, that's, that's something like that, that, how I've learned to learn over the last 10 years has, has been, you know, more than what I, I learned in school. How would you say your, um, connection to your creativity has changed over time as you've had these different career paths and do you still feel like your work is creative even though you're not composing? Hmm. <laughs> I had this interview once about 10 years ago, uh, and I was trying to sell uh, to some banker on the other line how my music experience was relevant, and they weren't hearing of it. <laughs> and all these years later, I look back and I go, yeah, no, there is a connection. I think you can, yeah. you can get creatively interested in lots of different things, and that even if you know, there are different geographies of your brain that tend to focus on certain types of activities, uh, there are a lot of... Uh, relations between writing and composing right even if the writing is technical writing you need to structure it you need to decide where the beginning is going to be where the middle is going to be where the end is going to be and that's not an arbitrary decision if you just hear noise in your head when you're starting off you have to organize that and then you start fleshing out the details so the the process of writing music for me feels very similar to the process of writing about international affairs in terms of my creativity i what have i been doing that's creative lately I've been just like drawing stuff. I'm not a very good artist, what? but yeah, no, this is this is new. Just something that can completely take my mind off things. And what I was going to say about math is I feel like math has been doing that for me in a way. Like for some I've been so involved in human affairs for the last 5 years. Every day I've I've just lived and breathed and eat it and been familiar at least familiar with what's going on in most of the world. Man, is that hard to do right now? It's nice to just be able to completely focus on something that's abstract and in front of you and not related to what's going on. And in a way, calculus has kind of felt that way for me. I know it's not super high-level math. It's not like proofs and stuff that, that some people do, but um, Sounds it Sounds high-level is... to me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that has, in a way, felt creative to me because the, the way that... You get to a certain point in math and you start doing things in 3D and you start to draw 3D on paper. So you have to really start kind of like twisting your mind around to imagine what the shapes are that you're working with. And that's creative. That's it's there are correct answers, but it still takes creativity to try to see what those images look like in your head before you can approach the problem. I 
that's a great point too that you have creativity in your work you know with your writing and you've you've always been writing um you know you've been writing prose and um you also have creativity just as a form of like play and fun just to kind of yeah not just escape but also just be connected mm-hmm. with yourself yeah there's something about playing an instrument that really does put you in that present moment the other reason why I've really wanted to have you on the show is because I think one of the big, I want to say mental health issues, (laughs) I suppose that a lot of us are facing right now is just the divisiveness of American politics. And so I also want to hear your thoughts about your work with Reconsider, which is basically talking about um, political discussions and kind of like a healthier way reconsider is a small media company we have a podcast we have a bunch of written articles and we're starting to dabble a little in video as you can see um (laughs) but the whole the whole idea is we want to help people consume news better and really pick apart a lot of these tribal narratives that have come to define our public sphere in the last several years and have only become more and more entrenched it seems as time goes on so one of the ways i always describe it to people is like we don't want to tell you whether to think that you know option a is better than option b but if you're aware of those two options all we want to do is tell you that option c and d and e also exist and maybe you end up liking one of those options better as well as explaining why other people think the way they do and use language that they do and how language influences people's thinking so we've been around for five years now and we've made well over a hundred episodes what gave you the idea to start reconsider Hmm. We started in late 2015, and I think at that point, the, the challenge of tribal rhetoric was becoming apparent, but it wasn't quite as like obvious as it is now and slapping us in the face. What's, um, sorry, what's tribal rhetoric? Um, yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. The idea that everything is framed from the perspective of the other is the enemy. Right. And so instead of Democrats and Republicans being Americans with different perspectives on how to solve challenging problems that we all face, it becomes in group, out group all the time. Mm-hmm. So that was becoming apparent in 2015 that that was becoming a, an element, a, a, a recurring element in American politics, as well as other countries. But it wasn't quite as obvious as it is now. So uh, my my business partner, Eric, Eric Fogg and I. It just becomes so fed up with how everyone else was talking about politics that we kind of said, okay, well, let's let's try to have conversations that aren't, you know, encouraged at sensationalizing and dividing people. That's not going to be our profit model. A lot of people are losing family and, and friends because of political differences. Is that something that you've experienced in your yeah. life? Certainly. Um, the, the example that comes immediately to mind was uh, a friend of mine who I was close with, and this is before Reconsider existed, but got into one of those uh, wonderful Facebook arguments that devolved so quickly that it actually went to DM. And you know it's, you know it's bad when someone has to reach out to you beyond the public environment and say, by the way, I just wanted to really be clear about why you are wrong and a terrible person. So that, that went great. And I mean, I contributed to it as well, right? Like I think the 
being around our age, 30 something, mid 20s, mid 30s means you've had those conversations online at one point or another with a friend or someone, right? right. Fortunately, I haven't fallen out without any family over stuff like this. I started off as a passion project. Eric and I um, wanted to just have better conversations. And we just said, all right, let's commit to, you know, having an hour long in depth conversation about something important that's in the news every two weeks and we'll go from there. How do you decide what topic you're going to? embrace and how do you sort of make sure that you're um, exploring all sides of the issues yeah I think the structure has developed developed more as time has gone on and really what we try to do right now is here's a topic here's an issue here is what different sides are saying about it here is why they're saying the things they're saying and here are potentially potentially some of the problems with those different uh interpretations or maybe not problems you know strengths and benefits so on and so forth we haven't always been that structured but that's basically what we try to do in each episode And at the end we have what we're calling a reconsider moment so it's this idea that we want to leave you with something provocative enough that perhaps you will end up changing your mind and we want to encourage the idea that changing your mind is not a bad thing like for some reason in politics it's like oh if you've thought the same thing for 50 years you're a real politician and it's like okay but the world's changed a lot in 50 years don't you need to but, you know, if you do that, then you're a flip-flopper and everyone hates you for that. It's just like there's no winning, right? Um, but in terms of topics, we focus on a handful of different things. Foreign policy is a big one for, for us in part because Eric and I both have experience in international relations, either professionally or academically. Um, but we also talk a lot about uh, domestic issues and d domestic political narratives. So, again, specifically what people are saying and why historical comparisons and stuff like that that helps place some modern events in better context. Because, um, you know, everyone's favorite historical example is Hitler and the Nazis, in part because that's the one historical example that they're familiar with a little bit. Right. So uh, we want to help expand people's sample size a little bit so they can be like oh okay so that's how it played out at this different time now i have a little bit better perspective for understanding where we are now uh, yeah it's interesting you brought up uh fascism because <laughs> it's a word that's thrown around a lot and i i just have my own emotional reaction to that word right as a jewish person i will say this i feel like for several years when people have asked me isn't this exactly like 1930s weimar germany one of the things I've said is, no, not really, because we don't have like roving bands of armed militia like working independently of the government. And now after the debate last night, it seems like maybe we will have that. So, you know, uh, part of the reconsider mentality is when you're wrong, you say you're wrong. And it kind of looks like this is just shaping up in an ugly direction right now. But, you know, there are a lot of differences between 1930s Weimar Germany and today. Uh, Germany was only a 40-year-old country at that point. It had been hobbled together by a lot of different independent monarchies and duchies. And the U.S. has been around for 250 years. And, you know, after World War I, the pressures on all, all of the structures in Europe at the time were immense. Far greater than, um, I think, what they are now. Because, right. you know, there's nothing like a war that kills 10 million people. And as bad as things are now, that's not happening, fortunately. So the Weimar Republic, the inner war years, uh, the government in Germany was extremely weak and fragile and had, you know, a five-year history of being uh, a liberal democracy. We have a much longer history, and we've, we've withstood a lot of violent conflict in our own past. So um, there are a lot of differences, and I think that that's, that's the problem when everything becomes pre-World War II Hitler. Right then if those sorts of things actually start to happen, like it, 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 it waters down the comparison a little bit. 
So the roving band's a malicious thing right now is extremely concerning to me, and that's been one of the differentiating things I've said for years, but even then the historical context is very different. One of the topics that you've talked about on Reconsider with Eric that I, that I really loved was applying Stoic philosophy to today's time. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit about what Stoicism is and um, its connection to mindfulness? Because mindfulness is, I think, something a lot of us know what that means, but very few people know what Stoicism means. So. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's, Myself it's, included. <laughs> it's having a comeback in a really basic sense. Stoicism is the school of philosophy from classical antiquity, ancient Greek, uh, ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Um, there were a couple of big writers, um, three of them, um, and they were from very different stations in life. One of them was a Roman emperor, another was a Roman aristocrat, and a, another was a Roman slave. And like a common thread between all of these three authors is, you know, you can't control everything. So letting yourself uh, become frustrated or agitated um, as in response to something that's completely outside of your control doesn't really make sense. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you know, you're not going to feel things. It's just that over time, your relationship to your, your automatic feelings um, should maybe be gradually reevaluated. And it's like a, you know, a slow process, and it takes journaling and introspection and all of that. But um, that's one of the big ideas. Um, and another big idea is just, you know, not getting drawn along, chasing things in life that aren't really worth your time. You have a limited amount of time. You're going to die. We're all going to die. So what do we want to do with the time that we have? How do we make meaning of this all? I mean, there are three white dudes, right? And that maybe speaks of a certain bit of, uh, like, r restrictive mindset of the philosophy, but they did come from very different stations in life. You know, it's not unique to these three folks, right? And and you mentioned mindfulness, and there's so many similarities between Stoic philosophy and, like, Buddhism, right? And mindfulness came from modern secular mindfulness came from the practice of meditation in Buddhism. And that's what's interesting about it to me is that people from all over the world in these different time periods came to some of these general conclusions about, like, um, our relationship to our own emotions when we're faced with circumstances that are either outside of our control or ex otherwise extremely challenging. So how have you kind of applied some of these ideas during this pandemic and this political time period? There's so much outside of our control right now, isn't there? And yeah. the things that are in our control seem in so many ways paltry and insignificant. Like, staying home and wearing a mask like that seems like a very small thing that you can actually do and even that it seems like people aren't willing to do now um which is a whole nother conversation but you know we we have a very small uh, chance of influencing national elections but that's largely outside of our individual power um the way that leaders and politicians act in moments of crisis uncertainty is also outside of our control um, how we act is within our control and how we respond to how we feel during these uh, crazy times is to a degree within our control, but something that takes practice. And that's part of the mindfulness bit is you don't sit down and become enlightened in a day, right? right. You, you realize through the process of analyzing how you're feeling in a moment, how you react to different stimulus uh, stimuli. I'm trying to take care of myself and take care of my family and take care of the people that I, I love and who I'm close with. And cause that's kind of in our control. 
but still not completely. I absolutely think that being involved in politics can make a difference, yes. um, especially local politics where the number of people voting is so uh, far less than at the national level. Um, there are just times when developments happen and we can either choose to um, let our emotional reaction control what we do, control our response to those events, or we can try to put a pause button on that pathway. So when I talk about not being able to control the outcome of certain political things, that's what I'm talking about. Clearly, we have some influence. We have a voice. And um, I've been very active in my life, and you know, I encourage everyone else to be active too because I think um, you learn a lot engaging with with the system and you know it's not all positive but it just you, you yeah. learn kind of how, how it works a little bit more and this is where i feel like mental health comes in like there's just so much rage and fear and sadness about what's going on in the world um regardless of of your beliefs you know i, I think it's 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 a tumultuous time for everyone um so how do you what kind of advice do you give just you know given this this philosophy i suppose when whatever does come election night or in january on inauguration day um you know we can at least gird ourselves to be ready for how we react because we will feel a certain way and we can anticipate that we're all going to feel rage and anger and and or relief and exasperation one way or another it's coming if you're not already there so um, don't let those feelings control you if you can handle it. Like, be aware that they're happening, right? Because I think that one of the challenges and one of the causes of the political division in our country is we're all being controlled by our emotions right now. Not all of us, but, you know, yeah. many, many people are. Like you said, it's a rage. And when, when you get angry, it's hard to think straight. We've all yeah. been there. We're all human yeah. beings. You see red, right? And you get defensive, and we know these things both from living through them and from psychological research. Like people change how they act when they are emotionally uh, inflamed one way or another, right? Um, yeah. So all you can do is, is build, uh, build in like checks against that in the way you think, right? If, if you feel like you're getting really upset in a conversation, you can just kind of note it. And that's where the mindfulness comes in. You notice those sorts of changes in how you feel more readily Right. Um, and you can say, okay, well, usually when I'm, I'm this pissed off, uh, I don't accomplish much in conversation. So maybe it's good for me to stop talking right now and either end the conversation or just be quiet and listen to what this other person has to say. And I'll reflect on it later and maybe I'll learn something. Um, but there, there are times to talk and there are times to listen. And some, usually when you're pissed off, like you're not going to accomplish much in a conversation. Right. right. Um, so I guess that's, uh, that's how I'd answer that bit for, yeah. for right now and for the next couple of months. It's a lot of work. And I mean, so much of what we do at Reconsider is using ideas like this in how we engage with politics, both reading the news and actual engagement with other people. Like being aware of how you're feeling in a moment, um, being skeptical of your own internal dialogue, realizing that, and this we can come back to mental health now. Like if, um, there are similarities between Stoicism and Buddhism, and there's similarities between mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy. And I've had depression, um, and part of, you know, one of the things that's really effective is what they call cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, which is essentially changing the story that you're telling yourself in your own head. 
It's not easy. You have to sit down and, and journal all the time. And there are exercises that you work through and it takes months, if not years, depending on your own, you know, uh, unique situation. If you can work on quickly changing the narrative in your own head at a moment when you're emotionally charged, it's not easy. It takes practice, yeah. but you can probably get better at engaging people who are using such completely different language than you're used to. It is a practice. It's, it's like a muscle you have to exercise, like changing your thought, your thought patterns. What kind of, so you mentioned journaling. Um, what kind of tools do you recommend or have you found useful in cognitive behavioral therapy? There's one book, I forget the name, but it's kind of like the seminal book in CBT. And they, they have exercises in the book that you can do. And it's not quite journaling, but it is actually writing things down on paper. And the act of writing things out for whatever reason, helps you kind of reframe them. I really think meditating five, 10 minutes a day is, is useful. Um, you don't need to try to reach nirvana. It's just like, and you don't need to try to be peaceful. Like the point is not sitting and being calm and peaceful. It's just sitting and observing because the more that you observe um, how quickly your thoughts can randomly occur in your mind, almost with you know no, no influence from you or how quickly your emotions can change, um, you start realizing that it's just happening all the time and there's there's so much in our experience that's not really in our control. Understanding what you can and can't control for me mm -hmm. can be very challenging like when you have anxiety because there's almost a uh, I know I have a conception that there are more things in my control than there really are <laughs> or you develop certain rituals that you think help uh, achieve control but they don't actually just because there's this model of trying to understand what you can't control doesn't mean it's easy in practice right it takes <laughs> yeah. it takes effort and it takes thinking do i act can i actually do something right now that will change the outcome of this thing that i'm concerned about it's not always calm to just feel what you're feeling or to be aware of the thoughts that are going through your head especially if you you're dealing with a challenging circumstance or mental illness those thoughts can be dark it's not pleasant recognizing that they're there um and you know sometimes maybe you won't want to sit with that but it's yeah. it's helpful to know what's going on the virtue of practicing philosophy is in not just recognizing those things but then in practicing how you respond to them so it's the idea that we're all going to get angry in life it's part of being alive right if you know you are getting frustrated because someone you know some stranger cut you off on the freeway and you're raging at them, then you're essentially letting this other person control how you're acting. You may not be able to control how you feel, but they're controlling how you're reacting to, to, their, to what they did to you. Right. And when you think about things in those terms, it's kind of like, well, I don't, I don't want this prick to, to influence you know, how I'm feeling or what I'm doing. I, I, I can work on that, or I can just let it go and realize that it's really inconsequential if someone cuts me off on the freeway because I don't know them and they don't know me. As rough as this year has been, I think one of the takeaways for me uh, has been yeah. just finding the opportunities to think about the things that we're grateful for. Because, um, Anyways, yeah. yeah. So if uh, people want to find you and find Reconsider, where, where should they go? ReconsiderMedia.com. We have all of our podcasts up there, lots of our articles on any of your favorite podcatchers, such as Spotify or Overcast or Apple iTunes. You can find Reconsider. Just search for the Reconsider podcast. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, send us suggestions for an episode. We do a lot of uh, episodes based on listener feedback. 
just come find us on Facebook. We have a group. We chat with folks all the time. Uh, reconsiderMedia.com. Yeah, and you even we have our our group friend text where we're like, Sander, can you explain this to me? And then you do an episode about it. <laughs> Sander reminds me that not only must we work hard to understand and question ourselves and our thought processes, but we also have to try to understand and question and engage with the thoughts of people who we really disagree with, and that it is only through trying to find just even a strand of commonality um, where we can find a, a place of common understanding that that's really the only way to make progress um, in our civic life and in our personal lives so thank you so much Xander for joining me today and thanks for listening thank you for listening to loose leaf notebook I'm Julia Adolph and the music you are hearing is my orchestral work Dark Sand Sifting Light performed by the New York Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert conducting. If you'd like to hear some more of my music you can visit my website at juliaadolph.com or my YouTube channel which also has video versions of all of these podcasts. Thanks again!